Well, I'm thrilled to be here with you, worshiping his holy name. Am I off? There we go. And t- today in particular, the, connecting the idea of his name with his law as we continue to work through the Law of God series. Today we're actually going to be in the seventh commandment. And to set things up for you, I want to start by reading actually Jesus' commentary on these words. So from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, listen to these, uh, I guess disclaimer, kind of heavy words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Here's what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, if it causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Wow. Now, Jesus has some heavy words for us as we begin this morning. So why don't you go ahead and have a seat? And as you have a seat, I want to let you know that I brought a few hatchets and a couple of machetes. So after the service, if, no, we're not going there. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, does Jesus really want you to, to gouge your eye out? And does he really want you to cut your hand off? We're going to answer that question in a little bit. But before we get there, I want to I back up a little bit. And I want to tell a story that, that really kind of sets us up for understanding this. And the story is about something that probably everyone in this room has. It's about a bungee cord. Anybody have a bungee cord? I find bungee cords to be very helpful, very useful. I've got one kind of on a tarp on my back deck covering our patio furniture because you can't use it. Nine months of the year in the Northwest, but uh, I got one, a bunch of those on my back deck right now. But, but let me tell you about a bungee cord that comes out of my life when I was a kid. When I was a kid, about eighth grade, I, uh, I was on winter break. The school took a week off, and, uh, and the, the, there was snow outside. And In fact, my neighbor was over. He was a couple years older than me and about 80 pounds heavier than me, as well as my uncle, who's about a decade older than me and about two years less mature than me at that point. And so you can, you can kind of get the picture. These three guys in a house, no parental uh, authority or supervision at all. And we, you know, I think it started by watching some wrestling on TV, and before long, we were wrestling, right? And we were wrestling, but here's the deal. It wasn't really wrestling because it was these two guys who were much larger than me, basically playing catch with me. Hey, you want, you want to catch Mike? Here you go. You want to catch Mike? Here you go. And I was kind of just a rag doll being thrown around and uh, it, it wasn't going well for me. And so uh, what, what do you do? Well, well you seek revenge, <laughs> You seek revenge. And so I took my, my neighbor's shoes, a pair of Air Jordans, which he really liked his kicks, right? I took them and uh, major sin. I threw them in the snow. <laughs> I threw them way out in the snow. And so, of course, he, you know, he's got to go, go out in his socks to go get them and all that. And so he, what does he do? Well, he decided to take revenge on me. And so he ran downstairs where my room is because he knew that's where he could find my shoes, right? Now, at this point, I, I, I had a plan fixed in my mind. He ran down the stairs, and I closed the little baby gate at the top of the stairs. You know those things? My youngest brother was a toddler, so I closed the baby gate, and we had this little bungee cord. It was, you know, one about that long, and we would hook it onto the gate and hook it onto the, the, just like the coat, the coat cabinet right next to it, and it was, you know, get stretched a little bit, but I was going to booby trap this thing. And so I took that bungee cord, I hooked it on the gate, and I pulled it past the cloak closet, 
around the corner into the kitchen, almost hooked it onto the cabinet of the kitchen. And that bungee cord hit me square in the eye. I am guessing people heard me scream from miles away. Everything happened so fast after that. I remember my uncle putting me on the couch. I remember him calling my parents, and I think he said to my dad, don't kill me, but you're supposed to be in charge, right? I remember going to the emergency room. I remember the patch on my eye. I remember the doctor's visits. I remember the patch in a dark room for a month. I remember the eye specialist saying, you are this close from losing your eye. Imagine that. You could have the one-eyed pastor right now. (laughs) Now, this bungee cord, this bungee cord that's a treasure in so many ways, this bungee cord that's a tool that's so helpful, that's something useful, this bungee cord that I would argue is something good, for me, it became a trap. It became a trap that was incredibly destructive, almost, I mean, it could have ruined my life. I mean, I still blame, you know, the stigma in my eye and my baseball career going out the window on this bungee cord. I share that story because this is exactly what we're talking about today, but we're not talking about a bungee cord. Today, as we get into the seventh commandment, I'm just going to be up front, we're going to dive deeply into God's word and what God says about, about sexuality, we're, we're going we're gonna to wrestle with God's word and what God's word says about sexual sin. And, and here's, here's the big idea, the thing I want you to take away with you today, my, my pastoral burden and heart for you. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that worldly, worldly sex, that worldly sex, anything outside of God's design, it is a trap. It's a dangerous trap. But godly sex it's a treasure. It, it's, it's a gift. The worldly sex is a trap, but godly sex is a treasure. That's what we're going to look at today. I mean, have you ever asked yourself the question, how do I survive as a Christian in a culture, in a world that is saturated with sexuality? Maybe you're sitting here today or you're watching online and and you're thinking, man, uh, Jesus tells me to cut my eye out. Jesus tells me to cut my hand off. Maybe you're thinking in your struggle against sexual temptation, you're thinking maybe it is better that I just go and chop something off. Like maybe it's better because you are struggling in the battle and it, it is hard. Maybe you're wondering in this battle if there's hope or if there's victory. And today, today I want to give you hope when it comes to understanding God's view of sexuality. To do that, though, I want us to look at God's design from God's Word. I also want us to look at God's warning that exists in God's Word. I want us to to wrestle with those clearly. Ultimately, I want to help you navigate how you can think in line with what God has said and with what God has done. And and I believe so strongly in my heart that this is something for every person in this room. If you're married or if you're single, I believe that these principles apply in the most useful way possible to your life. If you're young or if you're old, these things, there's going to be encouragement, there's going to be hope, and there's going to be challenge. In fact, for the young people in this room, some of the things that we'll talk about, I think they can save your life from a world of hurt. 
In fact, if you're in this room and you're doing pretty good when it comes to sexual integrity, or if you know that you're messing up all over the place, I think this message is going to apply to both equally with real hope, with real, with real promise. But, but here's what we're going to do to do this. If we're going to accomplish these things today, I'm going to ask a favor of you. Would you today, for this message in particular, would, would you be willing to approach the Bible with a blank slate? Now, our culture has so many messages it gives us. Our culture has so many ways it wants us to think about sexuality and relationships. It's, it's, it inundates us. It overflows toward us all the time. Will you today, for the next 40 minutes, will you take that, will you set it aside and say, I am going to approach the Word of God with an open mind, with a soft heart, and a willingness, a willingness to consider what God has said if you do that, I think we'll be able to accomplish what we're setting out to, to do this morning. And, and if you're going to do that, that means here's where we're going to start. We're not going to start with Exodus 20 and God saying, you shall not commit adultery. We're, we're actually not going to start with Jesus's words talking about adultery in the heart. We're going to go to the creation account all the way back to Genesis. In fact, Genesis chapter 2. I want us to begin by looking at God's design and I want us to begin by, by realizing that God made marriage. God created marriage. When we talk about marriage, we're talking about the covenantal, the promised relationship between a husband and a wife. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast or cling or cleave. He shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, see, right in Genesis chapter 2, this is the second account of creation. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they parallel each other in some ways. And, and Genesis 2 is really a retelling of God's creation. And in this moment, God is giving a description of, of what we would call marriage. He says a man should leave one family unit. He should leave his, his father and his mother. And at the same time, a woman does the exact same thing. She loves, leaves his, her father and her mother. And it says, and the two shall be joined. They shall, they shall cling to each other. What this is saying is one family unit and one family unit, they have individuals that separate from them. And in marriage, they create a brand new family entity. God created marriage. And he created it in a complementary way husband and wife, male and female. He, com he, he made it so that there's companionship. He made it so that there, there's a partnership. In fact, he even uses this term, one flesh. He physically combined in such a way so that God now looks at this couple, not as two separate beings, but he now sees them as one. This is God's design. This isn't somewhere in, in the ages past of history, mankind came up with this really good idea and said, hey, you're a girl, hey, I'm a guy, hey, I got this great idea. This wasn't man's idea. Marriage was God's design. He made it. And not only did God make marriage, God also made gender. And gender here, what I mean is, is biological sex. Follow with me again. Back up one chapter, Genesis chapter 1. This is the first explanation of the creation account. 
verses 26 and 27. It says, and God said, God speaking, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, now, why is God talking in the plural? There's two explanations. Both of them are probably true. One, sometimes people think this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit making a declaration. That, that very well may be. Others say this is God speaking in what's called the royal we, right? If you're a king, you make a pronouncement, you say, we will do this, and you're talking about yourself, but you talk about yourself in the plural. Basically, this is what God's doing here. Either way, the point is God is God, and he's doing something here. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God is giving mankind dominion and authority over the earth. But listen to what it says next, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them, or created them, male and female, he created them. See, see, God created a complementary pair in his design. This actually teaches rather plainly that, that God made Adam and Eve to, to fill a certain gender. In fact, God made you male or female. Now, I, I recognize saying this is the opposite of everything you hear when you turn on your television these days. I recognize saying this is the opposite of, of even legislation that is at work at a national level right now. And I recognize that, but, but here's, here's where I want us to just slow down a minute and, rec and realize. The enemy of your soul, he is working overtime to get you to buy into the lies of things like gender fluidity. He, he, he's working overtime to get you to question what God has clearly stated in his word is, is not complicated as, as science shows a simple fact, chromosomes equal identity. You are male or you're female. Now listen, I, I don't say this in a way that's meant to be judgy or pointing a finger. I'm not trying to get up on a soapbox with some sort of moral superiority. What I'm really trying to do is if we're going to approach the Word of God with a blank slate and an open mind, I'm just trying to ask you to consider the simple and plain truth of God's Word. This is how God made the world to work. This is His design. God made marriage. He made gender, and so that in that, he made family. He made family. The very next verse, verse 28, and God blessed them. Well, let's not move too quickly here. Right after the declaration of God making man and woman in his image, both equal as image bearers, both equal in value and both equal in worth, he says, and he blessed them. God poured out his blessing in his creation design. It continues. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what God says. God says, I am going to make mankind. I'm going to create them male and female. I'm going to build into them this institution of marriage and marriage is going to have this point, which is the family. The family. He, he's talking actually about reproduction here. When he says fill it, he's talking about filling the face of the earth with mankind so that human beings under the authority of God, they, they steward the entire earth. They rule over it, not in a domineering, mean-spirited way, but, in, but almost as in cultivating and caring and overseeing the entirety of God's creation because mankind, man and woman, in the family relationship, the pinnacle of what God has made. This is, this is God's design. And he says, fill it. And so how do you fill the earth? Do you Google, what's the number for the stork? What does God mean by fill the earth? He means reproduction. He, he means reproduction through, through sex. You see, not, not only did God make marriage, not only did he make genders, not only did he make family, listen very carefully, God himself is the author, the creator of sex. Back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This term one flesh here is actually talking about the, the intimate physical relationship between a husband and a wife. This is talking about the act of sex. Now, in the church, we say that, and people are like, oh, you're not supposed to say that word. <laughs> that, that's, that's a dirty word, right? Oh, you're not supposed to talk about sex. Sex is of the devil, right? Sex is evil. Sex is taboo. Sex is something that's dirty. Church, that is not the reality at all that you find in the Word of God. Sex isn't dirty or taboo or evil or wrong. Sex is God's design. He made it. He, he dreamt it up for you. He designed your body so that it has the, even the desire for it. This is how God has made you as a man or as a woman with this longing for sex. Because, because through that, this is how children are born. Now, I don't think I need to, to pull out a chart and draw pictures for you today. That would make us really uncomfortable, right? But, but this is the point. God, God's purpose, God's design is in sex. And, and I'm even going to press it a little bit further. God didn't just make sex as this thing that you have to do once in a while to reproduce. God made sex to be good. He, he made it good. Look with me in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5, how the sage, how the teacher, how he instructs someone to think about the sexual relationship within a marriage. Look at these words here. It says, speaking of, explicitly speaking, this, this is talking about the sexual intercourse. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? This is talking about a sexual experience outside of the marriage relationship. Verse 17, he says, no, no, no. Let them be for yourself alone and, and not for strangers with you. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth 
a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I love looking up just in time to see someone smirking. Then if the lights weren't so bright, I'm guessing there would be some red cheeks in the room. Are you, are you allowed to say that in church? How does this word of God describe the sexual encounter between a husband and a wife, the sexual encounter in marriage? Does it describe it as boring or as evil or as uh, like a necessary evil or something wrong or something that, you know, you, you touch when you have to, but really you want to avoid it at all costs? No, look at this language. Rejoice. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Love her dearly. It says you are to be delighted. It actually says to be intoxicated with the sexual experience. Now, this is not saying go and drink a bunch of alcohol and then come. No, this is saying that you are to be so overwhelmed with pleasure in, in this relationship, in this experience, that it actually is, is how God designed it. Listen, church, God, God made sex, and he made it to be beautiful. He made it to be good. This is not something to shame about. This is not something to point fingers about. So often we do that, and, and when we do that, I think that leads us to the next part of the message because, because God made sex, but we, we forget that because what have we done? Here's what we've done. We have messed up sex. We, humankind, mankind, even though God made marriage and gender and family and sex, and even though he made it good, he, here's what we have done. We, we have messed up sex. I mean, this is the reason why we get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and it says these words, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, the context of this is the people of God, Israel, they've been led out of the, uh, out of the land of slavery, They've been rescued through the Red Sea. They've been made God's people. And as they're, they're traveling into the, the wilderness, God, God is saying, here's, here's the law. You shall not commit adultery. In, in the Hebrew, it's two words, not adultery. It's pretty simple, just like last week, not murder. God had to give this command because Israel, just like you and I, they were sinful people. See, instead of, instead of loving God's design... Here's what they did. They, they rather, they loved their desire. That's what we do in our world today. Instead of being willing to look at what God has said in his, his design and say, God, I believe your design is good. I believe that you love me. I believe that you have done all things well, and I'm going to trust, and I'm going to follow your ways. Here's what we do. We say, God, I don't need your authority. I don't need your design because I've got my desire. I know that you've said this, but this is what I want. And so in our desire, what we do is we we replace God's authority with our own authority. And we push aside God's design to pursue our own sinful desire. And, and so for Israel, God says, do not commit adultery. But, but sexual sin, it's actually much broader than adultery. It's not just saying, okay, if you've never had sex with someone you're not married to, then you're, you're in the clear. No, no, Jesus reminds us that it's much broader than adultery. This is the same passage we looked at last week, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. 
This is a passage where Jesus is answering questions about cleansing and ceremonial washing of hands. Listen to these words, verses 21 through 23. He says, For from within, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now last week we talked about one of those words, the idea of of hate or murder and anger and all that. Today we're going to talk about another one. And today I want you to see Jesus uses the word adultery in there, but he uses another word as well. He uses the word sexual immorality. In the Greek it's actually the broadest term for, for sexual illicit behavior that there is. It's, it's the word, you'll recognize it, pornonia. What does that sound like? It's the word we get pornography from. And this word in the, in the Greek literature, in the ancient Greek literature, it's used for adultery, which is when, when you're married to a person and you have sexual relationships with someone else. It's used for fornication, which is when you're not married and you have sexual relationships with someone it's used for prostitution. This is when you receive money or you give money for sexual relationships. It's also even used for homosexuality. This is when you, a person of one gender has sexual relationships with someone of that same gender. This term, sexual immorality, it covers the entirety of it. And then this term is a clear recognition. Jesus' words here, this is Jesus saying that, that any sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife according to Jesus, is sexual sin. Now again, I know that we're leaning hard against the culture right now. I know that in your world, this is probably, some of us, maybe not the easiest thing to to hear. But but listen, hold on with me a little bit longer. Let's hold on to God's design, and let's let's understand how, how we've gone astray from it. You see, Sexual sin, it's broader than adultery, but, but it's even worse than that. Sexual sin, it's, it's deeper than actions. It's not just, okay, I, I won't do anything wrong sexually with my body. Jesus, he, he points inside of you as he teaches this. Sexual sin is deeper than actions. Matthew chapter 5, picking up where we left off last week, this is actually the text we began with. Verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, oh, good for you. You haven't committed adultery physically. But if you've got wandering eyes, if you undress a person, if you imagine a person, or or in today's world, if you turn on a screen that displays something, in that moment, you might not have physically committed adultery, but but that lustful intent is the same exact thing. Jesus here, what he shows us is that sexual sin, it happens in action and in attitude. Last week we saw the exact same parallel when it came to anger and hate in our heart. Jesus says if you hate or if you have anger in your heart, you have what's called hidden murder and you are liable to judgment. The same thing he does in this verse. He says if you have, if you have lustful intent in your heart, it's the same thing as adultery. Again, this is Jesus' words. 
He, he says that you physically might not commit a sexual sin, but internally you can be guilty of adultery. And our world is all too happy to provide you with whatever means you want. I mean, we used to say that you can go and you can look at something online, or you can look at something in print and you can see something and say, okay, this is wrong. But, but now, our screens, now our phones, our world is always giving us opportunities to, to have this, this hidden sexual sin. And, and this isn't to be played with. Uh, go with me a little bit further. You, you hear Jesus' instructions he says basically to do whatever it takes to battle your sexual sin. Verse 29. Because if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Does Jesus really want you to go and pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands? That's the question, right? Well, we just looked in Mark 7 that sin's source is internal. Jesus isn't saying go and be blind and, and have no arms. What Jesus is saying, he is saying that you have to do whatever it takes to battle your sexual sin. You have to, you have to go whatever distance it takes because it will ruin you. Now, Jesus here, he's... Church... He's not saying you're going to get a spanking. He's not saying you're going to get a disease. He's using the language of eternity here. He, he is making it clear that sexual sin is a trap. It's a trap. Have you ever set a trap? I know we have some hunters in our room and maybe online. Years ago when I was still living with my parents as a, as a kid, my my our backyard, we had these raccoons that kept coming in, and they would kill our cat, and they would, they would cause all sorts of issues. And so I remember my dad, he went and he bought a raccoon trap, right? I don't even know if it's legal. I don't know. He got a raccoon trap, and you know what he did? He, he opened up a can of wet cat food, and he put it in this trap. And you know what we found the next morning? We, we found a raccoon in there. And the next morning, we found another one, and we even found a possum in there. Those things are mean, by the way, right? So... Well, why did these animals go in? Because, because a, a trap, a good trap, is very seductive. You realize that sexual sin is very seductive. Sexual sin doesn't approach you as the ugliest thing you could ever see. Sexual sin approaches you as the most alluring and sensuous proposition that you could face. The Proverbs, again, Proverbs chapter 5, verses, verse 3. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. You know, these honey and oil in the ancient world, these were wonderful commodities. Honey was a sweetener, it was a treat, it was a gift, it was something that was a marvelous thing to have, it would improve your meals, and it says, it says that the lips of a forbidden woman, they drip honey, it's, it's seductive. Oil also in the same light, it, it was valuable and used as a, as a blessing. This is, this is something that her words are smoother than oil. When you face sexual temptation, you don't see the devil with pointy horns and a pitchfork. You see the most seductive thing that can be approaching you. Sexual sin is exactly like that. 
But it's not just seductive. Listen, sexual sin is also destructive. Next chapter in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. Sexual sin is destructive, but it will mess you up. Here's what it says, verses 27 through 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The image is just crystal clear. Go home this afternoon, build a bonfire in your backyard, get the, the logs nice and hot, not, not just so they're beginning, but they're nice and hot, the flames are roaring, and then go up to that fire and take your arms and scoop down into the fire and grab a couple of those burning logs on and just hold them nice and close and walk around. What is going to happen? You're, you're going to get burned. You're, you're going to get roasted. It's not going to be an enjoyable experience. This is what sexual sin is. It, it is a trap. It is seductive. It's, it's lips dripping with honey. It's words smooth as oil. But once you've had your honey and once you've had your oil, you find that you are burned. You find the guilt and the pain and the conviction. Now, now remember, this is all in light of, of sex was made by God. This is not us saying, ooh, sex is a terrible thing. This is God made it. He made it as a gift. He made it to be something joyful, something that you, you love and you delight in, but we have ruined it. And now we pursue it in all the wrong ways, and when we do, we, we find that we get caught in the trap over and over again. Well, what does this mean for us today? This means that if you're listening here, and you are, you are struggling, which According to Jesus, all of us do because we have it in our hearts, right? So this is not you, but not you. If you're listening to this today and you face the battle with sexual sin, all of us, this means we've got to determine what we're going to do. See, sexual sin can lead down one of two paths. Sexual sin, it can poison you eternally or, or it can point you to the gospel, let me, let me show you what I mean. You here, you stand at a crossroads. If, you've, if you're dealing with this battle of sexual sin, and it's going to put you in one of two different, different directions. Either it's going to poison you eternally, or it's going to point you to the gospel. Let me show you. Sexual sin can poison you eternally. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Paul is writing to a church that he helped start, to people he knows. Listen to his words. He says, or do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, eternal life. He says, do you not know that? Do not be deceived. There's a lot of deception in our world today. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, among of lists, a list of many things that will lead toward eternal consequence, Paul includes sexual immorality. 
He's not just saying those who have sexual sin are the worst. No, no, he's saying among a list of many things that will lead, that will condemn us, he says, he says it will lead you toward eternal destruction. Oh, if, if I knew that every day you were getting up and you were taking half a poison pill, not enough to kill you, but every day it make you, made you a little weaker, every day it took a little bit more of your life, every day it corrupted you physically a little bit more, the most loving thing that I could do was to, would be to grab you by your shirt collar, look you in the eyes, and beg you, will you please stop doing this? This is leading you to the path of destruction. This is what sexual sin, this is our response to it. When we deal with sexual sin, we don't point our finger and judge, and we don't turn our back and say, oh, whatever, I guess you're going there. With broken hearts and with tears in our eyes, we plead. We plead with people. The sexual sin will poison you to eternity. Now, I, I say this recognizing this is, again, this is the opposite of everything we hear in the world today. The world wants to let you know that you can do anything you want sexually. That's the cultural message. They want you to pursue whatever your heart's delight and desire is. But listen very carefully. The world hates you. The world doesn't want your good. The world hates you, and the world itself, it wants to destroy you. Do you want to know why? Because the world is heavily influenced by Satan himself, who is the enemy of your soul. You know what he knows? He knows that eternity is coming for him. He knows that hell and torment are coming. And he, in his hate and his evil, he wants to take as many with him to misery as possible. The world hates you. It says, come and have this candy, but it has no good intention for you whatsoever. But God loves you. The world hates you and wants to destroy you, but God loves you, and He wants to save you. See, this is the second path you can walk down in your temptation with sexual sin. Either you can, you can grab onto it and you can embrace it, and according to Jesus, it will poison you to eternity, or you can allow your sexual sin to point you to the gospel. Look at the next verse here, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. After Paul just gives this list of all of these things that will lead to eternal condemnation, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let these words sink in. Paul here is saying that these things used to be true of the Corinthian believers. They, 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 they checked all the boxes for all of these sins. They were condemned. They had no share in the inheritance that is eternal life or the kingdom of God. That was true of all of them. That was once true of me and that was once true of you. But then Paul says, but that's not true of you any more. He says, you were washed. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, every spot and blemish that has been staining you because of your sexual sin has been washed away. He says, you were 
sanctified. This means that you have been made holy. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and your failure and your falling. He sees the perfect purity of his son, Jesus Christ. It says you were justified. Justified is a legal term. In the courtroom of God, this is when God looks at you, even though you were guilty of all of your sexual sin, he looks at you and he says, not guilty. Why? Because of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because all that sin that you had on you, Jesus carried onto the cross. Because of all the the rebelliousness and and all of the consequence and all of the punishment you deserve, he carried all all of it onto the cross. He didn't leave a single speck upon you. He took it all to the cross, and when he died, he made it so that you could be washed and sanctified and justified. He has made you his. Is it amazing that God can use our sexual sin and our rebellion? What should poison us to eternity, that God can use that to take our attention and turn it toward Jesus and his death and resurrection and now give us life. This is God's design. This is God taking what we have ruined and even using it for our good to bring us back to himself. This is the crossroads. This is where you stand right now today. Are you going to continue to be poisoned to eternity away from God, or are you going to allow the grace and the love and the mercy of, the, of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, are you going to allow it to point you to the gospel? If you're here right now, or watching online, and you say, I want, I want number two. Door number two. <laughs> I want the gospel I want to be washed. I want to be cleansed. I want to be sanctified. I want to be justified. And I want to walk in that. If that's you, uh, let me end with your response today. Let, let Let me walk you through how do you respond to to the free gift of the gospel. It starts with with this idea of repenting and believing. The word repent is a moral U-turn. The word repent is, is you're going one direction and you change your mind and you go the other direction. So instead of saying, I'm going to pursue my sin and, and my sexual rebellion and all the things that God doesn't want, instead of going this direction, I'm going to remember that Jesus died and rose again. And so I'm going to 180 degrees turn and I'm going to follow Christ I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe that his ways are best. I'm going to believe that he designed sex to work in a a certain way. I'm going to stop pursuing my desires and I'm going to trust in his design. Some of us in this room, we need to repent. Some in this room, you're having sexual relationships with people outside of marriage. If that's you, you, to repent means to stop. To, to turn around and go the other direction. Some in this room are, are continually watching pornography. No one else is looking, but you know. Some in this room are pursuing a homosexual lifestyle. Some in this room are maybe even wrestling with their gender and, and, try, and, and having the world whisper into their ear the lies that the world is teaching. Listen, this is not condemning. 
This is just the free gift of the gospel. To turn away from the direction you're going, and because of Jesus' love and grace and mercy, to believe him, to trust him, and to follow him. That's the first response. Repent and believe. But, but number two, especially if you've already done the first one, number two is to run, to run from sexual sin. That same chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, it says, flee from sexual, immora- sexual immorality. The word flee means run. It means hightail it out of there. It means to go as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Do everything you can to get away from it. This is what Jesus means when he says, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. He says, do whatever it takes to go the other direction. What does this mean for you practically speaking? This means that if you, well, if you're in a flirtatious relationship at work, this means you probably should quit your job. It's easier to find another job than to find another marriage. It's easier to find another job than to find yourself separated from God for all eternity. This means some of us needs to, need to take our screens out of our bedrooms. Uh, especially young single guys. If you have a screen in your room, nothing good is going to come out of that. You should have your screen in the family room, in a public place. In fact, you shouldn't even take your phone with you into your room. It might sound kind of crazy, but, but I understand. You need to flee. You need to do whatever it takes to run away from it. And so you need to, you repent and believe if you want to walk this path. You, you flee, you run, and then finally, let, let me just end here with an exclamation point. Refocus all of your thoughts on Christ's finished work. The next two verses, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Your, your body, this thing that you can use for sexual sin. Do you not know that God, it, His Spirit dwells in you, whom you have from God? Listen to these words. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're in Christ, your body's not yours. If you're in Christ, your body has been purchased, not not with cash, not with gold, but with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross when he cleansed you. You're not your own. And so now take this body, take your life, take everything you have, and, and, and honor God with it. Do what he's called you to do. Not perfectly, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, I get it. But do everything you can to to turn from your sin and turn toward Christ, to flee from temptation and run to Christ all the time. Every time those temptations come, remember what Jesus has done for you. It's actually not complicated. See, worldly, worldly sex, it's a trap. But godly sex, it's a treasure. Heavenly Father, God, I, I just ask for your grace and your mercy upon each of us today. God, the, these messages, when they, when they come, when it's time to handle your word around these topics, we, we, we just confess our inadequacies and our weakness. God, we confess that there's not one of us in this room that doesn't face temptation. And so we come before you thanking you that Jesus has paid the price for all of our sin, that that we don't have to stand condemned, 
that we don't have to buy into the lies of the world and, and of our enemy, but instead we can experience the freedom and the joy of being washed, of being sanctified, and of being made not guilty. God, I, I, I pray for you to, by your Spirit, kindly work on our hearts and minds right now. I, I pray that you would help us to see the good design that you've made. Lord, I pray that you would gracefully grant us repentance. Heavenly Father, I pray your Spirit would do that, the work that I can't do. I pray your Spirit would change our hearts and our minds. I, I pray that you would show us your great love. God, God, I pray that we would see how amazing Jesus is, how he is infinitely more valuable than any of the sin, any of the sexual sin that we could pursue. And as we look at how amazing and wonderful and loving Jesus is, the temptations of this world become weaker and weaker. And the joy we have in you and in your good design become greater and greater. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.